Welcome to Songs and Tales, a podcast where we delve too greedily and too deep into the works of J.R. Tolkien. I'm Aaron, and it's Friday <laughs> night. <laughs> and I'm Clara, and we are the consumed mates of Angolian who will guide you on this journey. And it is a Friday night, and we do not typically record on Friday nights. And I'll tell you what, there's a funky energy. It is. There is a funky fun energy going on we're going to talk about silmarils mm-hmm. we're going to talk about evil and lust and we're going to talk about everybody's favorite spider queen ungoliant that's right gloom weaver herself my new instagram handle if you want to find me don't find me i don't post anything important but i will be under gloom weaver for now on <laughs> Uh, anyway, we are oh, here to talk God about bless. serious things. <laughs> yes, we are. Actually, we this like these two chapters are um, we cover a lot of important ground. Obviously, the Sil- Silmarils are a big part of this, so we learn more about them, where they're coming from, um, and maybe that's the place to start. I think yeah. you had some some thoughts about that, but but I I can also uh, chime in. Yeah, I think that's the place to start. Um, first, I do want to give just a little recap about kind of what's going on. It's pretty simple. You could probably sum up these two chapters in several sentences, which I'm going to try to do. So we read chapter seven and chapter eight of the Silmarils and the unrest of the Noldor and of the darkening of Valinor. So in chapter seven, basically, Feanor forges the Silmarils. We'll get back to those. Mm -hmm. And then Melkor starts to poison him against the other elves, against the Valar, kind of works on his pride And we start to see a little bit of strife, a little bit of struggle happening between him and his half-brothers and him, kind of everybody else. Feanor makes a lot of enemies in this chapter. Um, Burns a lot of bridges. He really really does. Mm. I'll tell you what, his his brother, why can't I remember his name? Finway? Finn, nope. Fingolfin. Oh, Fingolfin. I'm sorry. That's uh, ridiculous, but a, continue. Yeah, I feel like I'm putting the emphasis in the wrong place, but I also feel like no matter that's where right. I put the emphasis, it's going to sound funny. Fingolfin? Fingolfin? Fingolfin. <laughs> All we, around. We'll accept any of those. Yeah. Thank you. Anyway, his brother's like way nicer to him than he needs to mm-hmm. be in this situation. And then in the darkening of Valinor, we learn about how Melkor goes and makes a big spider lady friend with Ungoliant and they uh, destroy the two trees and consume their light. Mm-hmm. Ah, and then in the next chapters, we'll learn about the fallout from all of that. Right. Um, so this is kind of our big turning point. This mm-hmm. is where bad things, truly bad things start yeah. to happen. We've had some bad things happen before, but nothing quite as catastrophic as this and correct me if i'm wrong but this is the first time those bad things have not exclusively been because of melkor that's correct okay so the silmarils what are the silmarils the silmarils are three three super cool crystals for all you crystal guys and gals out there they are very cool they're very charged they have a lot of energy if you couldn't tell i know nothing about crystal (laughs) yes aaron do you have something to add about crystals? This is a new age podcast now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess they're pretty straightforward. They contain the light of the Valar, right? Or Valinor. Yep, they, can, they contain the light of the two trees. So yeah, the light of Valinor is right, trapped so... in these three crystals. 
So the Silmarils are super important because not only do they trap this light, but also once the two trees are destroyed in chapter eight, they are the only remaining source of the light of Arda. They're the only remaining source of this pure, we'll call it heavenly light. Even, you know, the sun and the moon, which are modeled after the trees, don't contain the same Mm -hmm. light. Also, for plot purposes, they drive the rest of the plot of this book. Tolkien says in his letters, the Silmarillion receives its name because of of the events that are all threaded upon the fate and significance of the Silmarilli, Mm -hmm. which are the plural, of course, form of the Silmarils. According to Tolkien, according to his letters, by the making of the gems, the subcreative functions of the elves are chiefly symbolized. And I feel like we've kind of been struggling to like verbalize what we're thinking about and like talking about when we talk about subcreation. It's one of those things that it makes sense, but I, I don't know. I feel like we've struggled to talk about it. So I was, I was, as one does reading about um, the great German painter, Albert Durer this week. This sounds very fancy. It was not, I'm planning for a trip and was looking at museums in Munich and stumbled across a one of the Durer paintings housed there. <laughs> and so I kind of went on Just a little deep Just say dive. that you read about art every weekend. Don't I read about art every week. Anyway, so I was reading about this, this self-portrait by Durer. It's very famous. It's called Self-Portrait in a Fur Coat. If you're unfamiliar with it, look it up. There's a good chance you've probably seen mm-hmm. it somewhere. If you've taken an art history class, there's like a 90% chance yeah. that you're familiar with this painting and you just didn't realize and I, there was a passage in what I was reading that I actually think really helps to understand what subcreation is and what it's doing and why it's so important. So when he was making this painting, Durer deliberately set out to create a Christ-like image. He has his, rant, his right hand raised his chest, uh, which is almost a pose of blessing. It's not quite blessing would be two fingers and a thumb. He's mm. a little more relaxed than that, but it's still, I'm doing it with my left hand, of course, <laughs> pagan, but it's still, it's his right hand is raised sort of in this blessing. He has a fairly direct gaze. He does look a little bit off to the left, but for the most part, his, his gaze is direct as most images of Christ at this time were. And uh, scholars have also noted that he, his hair is darker than mm. in most images. But anyway, so this sort of artist, <laughs> artist as Christ wasn't actually meant to be any sort of blasphemy. It wasn't meant to like elevate uh, Durer to the level of, you know, the son of God. The passage that I was reading says this is the ultimate image of humanism the artist Mm -hmm. as an instrument of god's continued Mm -hmm. creation right so this is i think i don't think tolkien would love us using something talking about durer who was friends with martin luther (laughs) to help describe what subcreation is but i do think this is a good way to think about it and think about why it's so important to Tolkien to have subcreators and to be a subcreator. As an artist, the artist is creating creation, right? Mm-hmm. So they are God. I think you talked about icons last yeah. week. You know, the divine is working through them to create a creation, and thus that creation is also divine. Right. Right. And the right. Silmarils are the ultimate kind of source of this because not only 
are they created by the creator through someone, through a sub-creator, they also contain this pure, holy, unsullied light, Mm -hmm. to use a Mm -hmm. word I think we've used before. So this is why the Silmarils are kind of, they aren't kind of, they are the most important symbol throughout these books and why they're so important, mm-hmm. right? This divine spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes that divinity accessible mm-hmm. again. And yeah, that's why I think the icon imagery keeps coming back to me is that it's a way to both through the artist is, is bringing the divinity to earth into a material form. And then that can be observed and experienced by other people. And, and the Silmarils seem to follow a similar kind of logic in this book. And it's partly why Feanor ultimately covets them and mm-hmm. sort of has this like proprietary sense of ownership over the Silmarils, which right. maybe I'm getting ahead of us. But. No, no, I think that's, you know, a great turning point. The only, the only other thing I would add is, you know, I, yeah, I kept also coming back to icons and, is it in, I haven't read the Brothers Karamazov in a long time, but I know there's like an iconographist uh, and they like, you know, when one is painting an icon, they're meditating on the divine. Yes. So they are yeah. truly just allowing the divine to work through them. Mm-hmm. They are not technically like the artist, right? Right. God right. is the artist. But yeah, so you mentioned to go back to mm, fan or mm-hmm. coveting yes. his creation. We can talk about why this is an issue. I think this kind of dovetails nicely into that. So fan yeah. is coveting a creation that's not his to mm-hmm. covet, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to, and do you want to go into that a little bit more? I know you had some thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting for that reason. A is sort of ownership of art, but also to ownership of or control of access to the divine. I mean, it, there's, there's a whole sort of history of clerical and anti-clerical thought that I think we could kind of experiment with. Well, here we with already talked about Martin too. Luther's. <laughs> right. I mean, I think, yeah, I think in a, in a bizarre way, there is maybe a, maybe a stronger connection between this and, and some of those sort of anti-clerical elements of Protestant uh, theological thinking, but I, yeah. I, I'm not an expert on that. So I don't think I want to go too far down that road, but but I mean, I think the thing for, for us for this book is that we once again are seeing how, and I think we're going to see this more as we go further along, but how like a sense of ownership in Tolkien's world is kind of a warning sign for badness to come, that, that mm-hmm. there is this kind of sense of, I don't want to say collective ownership, but like with the Valar, for example, right, they sort of coexist fairly harmoniously yeah we don't get a sense of like they're jealous about each other's control or their powers i mean melkor Mm -hmm. is obviously but he's kind of the exception of being jealous of you know manway's power and things like that but but there is this sense that feanor kind of he kind of sullies the the gift he's been given Mm -hmm. by being able to be this vehicle right to preserve this light but the fact that he wants to be sort of the sole controller of it quickly kind of turns him from inspired artist into not necessarily evil but like he's he suddenly becomes a threat to the sort of whole system that we're operating in here on on valinor and and on middle earth right he introduces sin Mm -hmm. right it's kind of like the apple in Mm -hmm. a weird way (laughs) Um, yeah 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 i mean it really is if we want to if we want to think of it that way you know it's a bit mind-bending because Mm -hmm. You know, it's not 
like a, a gain of knowledge, but it is certainly the thing, the path to sin, uh, as Tolkien sees it, is this kind of, I think you you said something about like limiting access to, mm-hmm. right, the divine. We see Feanor starts to essentially like hoard his Silmarils, yeah. which everyone thinks are very beautiful. So yeah, he starts down this path of, this path of pride really is, I think, Feanor's ultimate sinning. Right. Although I did read, I think it was in Tolkien's letters, there, he does kind of make mention of like his sin is also not listening to his wife who tries to temper him. But yeah, I think I want to talk about evil. I want to talk about, so we're talking about kind of pride, the sin of pride, right? But how is it working? Like, how does evil work here? Because we've talked about the cyclical nature mm-hmm. of bad things happening in Tolkien's universe and how you know, strife happens in the first age and it happens in the second age and it happens in the third age. And according to him, it keeps happening. It's just, there's no physical thing to attach it to. Mm-hmm. There's no Mal- uh, Malkor, Morgoth. There's right. no Sauron. There's no ring, right? It's just, it becomes conceptual. And Shippy has a section in The Road to Middle-Earth where he talks about kind of these two ideas, the Manichaean and the mm-hmm. Boethian ideas of evil. One, the uh, Boethian is that what is that evil is that evil exists as a thing mm-hmm. that can act on you and the Manichaean really says that there's no such thing as evil there's only human nature basically and that can be good or ill and Shippey writes that Tolkien is interesting because he kind of lets these two ideas work in tandem with one another there's kind of an internal evil, but there's also an external evil. And he uses a lot of examples from the fellowship to illustrate this, but I think we can also see this working Mm -hmm. in these chapters, this seventh chapter, specifically in the Silmarillion, when Melkor starts to kind of turn Feanor uh, towards sin. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's obvious Melkor is the progenitor of evil. Like, I don't think it does us any good to argue that, you know, he's not evil and it's right. all, you know, in everybody's heads. <laughs> he's a bad guy and he is, you know, he's needling at Feanor. He's right. You're laughing, mm-hmm. but yeah, he's, right. He's no, doing, he, right? he he's... knows how to, and that's the thing, how evil works. We've talked about this thing in the past, right? Is that it's insidious and it sort of inserts itself precisely where it knows it's going to have the most effect in this mm-hmm. universe, but also like just in myth. I mean, it's always sort of the character, you know, we know sort of what their weakness is. And then of course that weakness is exploited, whether it's, you know, desire for power or covetousness or whatever it is, right? Like the, we kind of know ahead of time. And I think we're seeing something similar here. With mm-hmm. how evil inserts itself cleverly uh, to yeah. exploit things. Yeah, very cleverly because you wouldn't even. It do, it seems like nobody even knows that Malcor is doing this. Yeah, that is what's interesting because it's not clear to me sort of how much the Valar know about what Melkor's up. Like they know he's like up to stuff, but do you have a sense of like how specific? <laughs> like, do they know sort of his plotting? I know they're keeping an eye on him. So. In, like a baby monitor out there on middle well, earth so <laughs> just listening for the cries yeah. of Melkor. so in chapter six when melkor is unchained manway grants him pardon mm-hmm. right and they have to kind of decide what to do with him 
Um, and I'm going to read a passage here because I think it's the best way to understand kind of what's, what's happening if they know what Malcor's up to. Tolkien writes, but fair seeming were all the words and deeds of Malcor in that time, and both the Valar and the Eldar had profit from his aid and counsel if they sought it. And therefore, in a while, he was given leave to go freely about the land, and it seemed to Manwe that the evil of Malcor was cured, for Manwe was free of evil and could not comprehend it. And he knew that in the beginning, in the thought of Iluvatar, Malcor had been even as he, and he saw not the depth of Malcor's heart and did not perceive that all love had departed from him forever. So Manwe at least doesn't. I mean, that indicates to me Manwe has no idea (laughs) what Malcor is up to. Tolkis and Olmo seem to know. We talked about this in the last episode. They all, you know, are like, okay, Manwe, you made that decision. We're going along with it. We know it's not our place to argue. So it seems like the Valar, even if they do know, Manwe doomed that Melkor could hang out in Valinor, and so he's there planting the seeds of evil. Just mind his own business. But I'm wondering too, like his ability to corrupt Feanor. Mm-hmm. It does seem to indicate to me that there's something, and the text I think indicates this too, that there's something within Feanor that can be corrupted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Evil plays yeah. on weaknesses. Malcor can't corrupt another Valar because there are no weaknesses there. Right. But he can corrupt, you know, the elves and the Maiar. We see it later in the in the fellowship. You know, Gandalf knows exactly what would happen mm-hmm. if he took the ring. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it is like like Shippy writes this dual kind of working yeah. of evil. It's both without, but it's also within, right? There has to be something. Mm-hmm. in a person that allows them to be corrupted. I think for Feanor, that's pride. Well, what's interesting too, is I, I think part of the reason he's corrupted as easily as he is, is because he wants, kind of wants the same thing Melkor wants. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this way in which I think if we're thinking of evil as something that resides within somebody and can be exploited, like the aspect of it is that Melkor and he think alike on some level. Um, not all levels, but like this right. desire to sort of contain control and own that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Control that source. Um, that's sort of his way in with Feanor is that they both have this kind of yeah, desire to, to control the source of this power. Um, and I don't know if we've seen that with anyone else up to this point, that kind of duality of thinking shared mm-hmm. between Melkor and somebody else. Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> Everyone up until this point has been pretty pure. So. Yeah, either like pure or just sort of like wandering around naming things. Right. I mean, you know, like there's this sort of um, innocence to the elves at first. And Feanor, who uh, arrives on the scene, is sort of the first one who seems to exist outside that kind of newness. Harmony. Yeah, or even just newness, right? Like, he he enters into the world and he seems to have a different not only perspective but kind of different um project Mm -hmm. than the other elves do um because the elves aren't perfect as we'll see (laughs) when we get to a few chapters down the road but he seems to be the first who kind of breaks with this 
otherwise pretty Edenic. Yeah. Existence. Yeah, it certainly is Eden. Yeah. Yeah. Like nobody's really kind of striving f- for a higher up on the rung in right. a way that Feanor, like it's clear that sort of his artistry is motivated not so much by pure creative impulse, but by this desire again to like assert himself. Yeah. And I think and- that goes back to the way he like, you know, drained his mother. <laughs> I mean, there's like this way in which like his hunger for that mm-hmm. is, is, shown even before he arrives essentially yeah. that he kind of has to sort of suck up all the power around him or the ability around him and and what results is not something that would have been created by a valar right i'm thinking now you know we talked about how the silmarils don't necessarily i mean they kind of indicate the fall or they mm-hmm. they they spark you know the events that cause the fall right and how they're, you know, they're not knowledge, but they are kind of, I mean, we see in mm-hmm. the chapter preceding Feanor does, he accumulates knowledge. He creates a new system of language. He right. learns as much as he can about making gems. He learns all this stuff about metalwork. Like he is, you know, he's a polymath. We hate him. You know, he just does everything. He yeah. learns everything. And so it is kind of because of his knowledge that he Mm-hmm. forces the fall but i was i was also thinking sorry i was flipping through my book because you're talking about kind of how he desires power more mm-hmm. than any other and in chapter seven again we also kind of see this he starts to have sort of this power struggle with uh fingelfin mm-hmm. right he he tells him get thee gone and take thy due place he is not willing to right yield the power the kind of kingship to anyone else even though that's not even what's happening but melkor has given him such false counsel that he believes his half brother is trying to usurp his throne as it were and so i just think that you know we start to see kind of the psychology of the way evil works right it's a whisper in the back of your yeah right it's a whisper in the back of your your mind right yeah and again, this parallels the ring. Yes, because, definitively. <laughs> right, because like I said, Gandalf and Galadriel, both, they aren't bad. They seem to be very pure and perfect, but they know exactly which weaknesses, right? Right. For right. Galadriel, oddly enough, I think this is something we'll talk about. It's this desire for power, mm-hmm. like real power mm-hmm. in a masculine sense, maybe. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> definitely agree with that. Or, you know, for Gandalf, it's his pity. Yeah. Which interesting that Tolkien sees that as a weakness that could be exploited. It's, um, yeah, it's because I mean, right? I think I, I, the thing about Tolkien, I think, is that he thinks anything sort of taken to an extreme is dangerous. Yeah, I actually thought about so. that. I almost made some notes in here mm. about like it's very like um, what is that Aristotle? Like ever, you know? Yes, Aristotelian. Yeah, yeah, stick to kind of the middle. Mm-hmm. Line. which i have problems with but but uh, but I um mean, but i think I, I mean it's it's a it's a compelling sort of thread in these books though is that yeah what what happens when you when you're so motivated by pity like what is sort of the if you were given ultimate power what's right. the potential harm that that could come from that and and like with boromir too right like his temptation is that he wants to secure his kingdom Right. But but we know that like nothing good will 
ultimately come out of that desire because it's always twisted then by like power twists it. So like good intentions are never enough. They're not enough. Yeah. And they're not realized, right? Like they inevitably become warped into something grotesque or uh, monstrous uh, at some point. To use a, a couple of key phrases that are going to come up a lot in the second <laughs> half of this episode. Well, I, yeah, I, mean, I think it's it's hard to separate this sort of view from what's going on in Tolkien's contemporary world too, between two world wars, right? This sure. idea that like anything sort of taken to an extreme becomes quite literally the end of potentially the end of sort of civilization or the end sure. of entire groups of people. Yeah, and like his pessimism. I think, which is fueled mm-hmm. by that, by those mm-hmm. world events is certainly, I think, you know, we see it here and then we're going to see it throughout the rest of the books. But I think you mentioned yeah. uh, in maybe episode three or four, you know, evil works in the same way and it's always uncreative. Mm-hmm. But I think the interesting thing is that it still holds so much power and it still yeah. endures, right? Evil is mm-hmm. Evil is uncreative but it's so cunning that we cannot ever truly overcome it. Right. You know, I think that's part of the statement Tolkien yeah. is making um, with the way he sort of views evil working in his, in his world, but then also in ours as well. The reason evil works is because it is simple. It preys on those sort of base, base yeah, yeah, base instincts, base <laughs> motives that are always there. And it's, there's this sort of like thin veneer of, ethics and civilization and morals at least certainly in Tolkien's world that's kind of preserving most of these people from apparently sort of giving into that barbarism if if we want to call it that yeah yeah I mean I don't like that as a word I think we're going to use a a few words coming up that like I don't love but there's no other words to like describe what we're trying to convey Mm. I think we see a lot of the seven deadly sins in these two chapters which I've been thinking about um you know, we're all a little prideful. We're all a little lustful. We're all a little envious. And evil knows exactly how to play on those. Mm-hmm. Melkor knows exactly. Yeah. He himself is lustful. He's always lusting. He's Which a lusty, lusty this, body gentleman. He's a very lusty body gentleman. Uh, I think this is a good segue into yeah. another yeah. thing I am hoping we can discuss. So the word lust comes up so much in these sections. I think this is like doom. It's another, it's another word nerd <laughs> moment like doom where I think we need to look into the word a little bit more to understand, you know, it's not just like, just like you're Malcor, not just horny on me. Yeah. Malcor's just, Malcor's not just like hot and heavy for these Silmarils. I mean, he might be. There's a good chance he, he is. could be, but. And he, yes, I mean, that might certainly be part of it. Yeah. But. Um, he contains multitudes. As do we all. That's right. So I looked up the etymology of the word lust because I was very curious to see what, what might be lying beneath the surface there. If it is truly like sexual, like mm-hmm. an un like a just a completely like wanton sexual desire, or if there's something else kind of brewing in Tolkien's sicko little philological mind that we don't <laughs> know about, right? I can guess what you found. <laughs> and guess what I found? There is 
it's not that revolutionary, but I do think it helps us kind of understand mm-hmm. how he feels, mm-hmm. his feelings for the Silmarils. So the word lust is from Old English, lust, <laughs> uh, meaning a desire, appetite, inclination, pleasure, pleasure, or sensuous appetite. So it is a little sensual, but mm-hmm. that's not that's not the whole kind of meaning. Um, it actually wasn't until 1517 that the word co- uh, connoted any immoderate sexual desire. Um, so Middle English, mm-hmm. it was any source of pleasure or delight or an appetite. So that we right. see a, a little shift there. Um, not even sensuous. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, you could have a lust for life. <laughs> yes, as the phrase goes. <laughs> the phrase goes, right? And then also noted any cognate words in other Germanic languages tend to mean simply pleasure. Mm-hmm. It is still weird, though, because like he was lusting after the Silmarils. It still means like, you know, for thinking of like pleasure or delight. It's hard to think of Malcor being delighted by anything. <laughs> I mean, it's still also very body oriented. Right. He physically wants them. Yeah. I mean, there's a physical body component. It's not like he just mentally is like, I need these because they give me power or whatever, prestige or whatever. It's, it's related to, there's some sort of bodily hunger that's being fed or met by this acquisition. And it's, yeah. Yeah. If it's not sexual, then it's like, well, what is it? (laughs) It's, I think it's just the physical desire to like have, have hold them have and hold yes to marry the Silmarils <laughs> uh, for better or worse uh and it might oh, be worse for him because he truly cannot hold them well, it, right I, and i think that's interesting as well right he yeah. desires these things he physically wants them yes so yeah. badly and he cannot like ha- he cannot yeah. touch them right i think that's the key because I'm thinking of the passage I think you drew our attention to last time where the light slowly sort of touches the shore mm-hmm. and like life springs. So like, yeah. I think there's this sense that like he's been denied that, that he like mm-hmm. both hates it, but also wants it. So it's a sensual pleasure that's not sexual, but it is gratifying in the sense that it, I mean, however we want to talk about whether it's wholeness or life or feeling alive or just feeling warmth right i think the the word touch is really important there because it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily sexual but it is a sense of connection that he's both like fears and well he and he he envies it and he Mm. desires it right or like he or he he hates it he hates it it, right right. and i think hate is synonymous with fear but he he hates it because he didn't create it Mm mm-hmm Right. Mm-hmm. Because he knows that it's a source of power. It's a source of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, to talk about that passage, it, it touches a, a hillside and there, right. you know, that's where flowers bloom. He wants that power. He wants to be able to create life. So he hates that he can't, but he also, right. He, he yeah. wants it because he thinks it will give him that power. And right. ultimately it does physically destroy him. Mm-hmm. This is, this is Melkor's sort of, Right. This yeah. is his this is his ultimate desire. Whether that's sexual, maybe a little bit. Right. Uh, but I don't know. There's so I just think there's so much more to it than 
when we oh, read there, that, yeah. when we yeah. read it as like, oh, he lusted after the Silmarils mm-hmm. and everyone's like, oh, ew. It's horny for rocks. What a right. sicko. That's not exactly Mm-mm. like how we should be taking that. It's Mm-mm. part of it, but it's not, it doesn't encompass all that I think Melkor feels for these gems. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really this like obsessive pleasure. <laughs> I think that's a good word. I think obsessive is really good, whether we tie it to a sexual desire or not. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like, I mean, it could be just as simple as just like his mental fixation. Right. Like this is his sort of, he's so like tunnel vision. And he's willing to poison. Right. Whatever. And whatever to get those. And that's what makes it evil too. Mm -hmm. It's not just that he desires this thing. Like, intensely it's that he's willing to go to any lengths to right to obtain it right we've all we've all desired something at some point but if we can't have it typically our conscience kicks in and it's like nope (laughs) (laughs) you know we realize that like oh it's not that important actually right malcor doesn't have that Mm -hmm. (laughs) he has like he's only got the devil on his shoulder he has no (laughs) angel yeah, so Malkor has got a lot of desires, a lot of lust. Uh, Feanor's got a lot of pride. Mm-hmm. So we've got two. I think, you know, Malkor has envy as well. Yeah. Um, do you want to take a little bit of a break and then talk about gluttony? Yes, absolutely. Okay, we will we'll be, be back. back. All right, welcome back. So we are kind of on our last-ish section. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so we're going to talk about Angoliant, um, who is a pretty central figure who, oddly enough, really only appears here. Um, she sort of vanishes into the mists um, after this this section. But yeah. so t- so uh, Melkor uh, kind of teams, he tag teams with Angoliant, yeah, basically. They, they team up. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like... Um, yeah, like a Marvel universe sort of moment here in this in the Silmarillion where we have uh, Melkor who's who decides he needs some help to to basically finish off the the, the Valar and Valinor sort of paradise. So he yeah, calls the- on Ungoliant to mm-hmm. join him, and he makes this sort of sneaky bargain with her where he sort of promises her up to a certain extent that he'll sort of share in the spoils. But of course, he plans to keep the Silmarils for himself. So uh, we we're introduced to Ungoliant. Um, she is, I don't know, Clara, how would you describe Ungoliant? She is our big spider queen. Uh, I believe my notes said she's big. She's spidery. She's hungry. She might have acid reflux mm-hmm. and she's an independent lady and we have to respect it. Yeah. All true. Uh, she, yeah, she's a big spider gal. Mm-hmm. she may not have always been that way Tolkien does say right. she took spider form yeah it's unclear this is kind of one of our biggest knowledge gaps so far and we've had a lot of knowledge <laughs> gaps I do believe we've vented about them at multiple times definitely complained about them uh but Ongoliant really constitutes a huge mm-hmm. knowledge gap this is a 
a spot where it's clear that the quote author yeah who is not tolkien right uh did not know right where uncle Ant came from the text simply gives us a note about her descending from the void, which is interesting because it seemed like nothing existed right. in the void, but apparently Ungoliant did. And right. she descended from the void. She took spider form. There are thoughts about perhaps she's a mire that's been corrupted, which seems to kind of track. Mm-hmm. She's certainly powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about this. The text implies multiple times that she might be more powerful than Melkor. And the fact that she can take spider form indicates that, again, she can change form Mm -hmm. at will. She doesn't. She takes spider form and she stays a spider. But, you know, the Valar and the Maiar are also afforded this power of kind of shifting between different states of being. We see this actually a lot in the section. Malcor becomes a cloud a lot. He's, he spends a lot of the time in chapter seven and eight is a cloud, which I odd choice. love so much. Um, it makes me think of Wordsworth. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on hills or uh, that floats on high or veils and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. <laughs> this is Melkor floating about Middle Earth. <laughs> but yeah, she is a big spider. Mm. Maybe wasn't always a spider. But right. now she is, and she spider is. she stays. Yep. And there's a lot to say about her. Mm-hmm. Another powerful lady, but powerful in a really, really different way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned that she's hungry. So we talked before the break. I said we we're going to bring up gluttony. And I think the first yeah. focus here is going to kind of be on her, her hunger. Mm-hmm. Aaron, do you want to go into that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. The, the very first real descriptors we get of her is that she's hungry and that she's trying to feed her emptiness. So she, right away, we, I think this is actually interesting for a couple of reasons that we're going to talk about, I think. Um, but I think we, I feel like we've talked about in the past how sort of sometimes women in this text become sort of vehicles for things mm-hmm. to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways she is kind of being situated here as another sort of potential vehicle in that emptiness, I think, right. That there is this sort of sense that, and I don't say this as being an unproblematic sort of view of women, um, but there is this sense, right. That she is sort of lacking in something that's like, this leads her to be this sort of like voracious mm-hmm. creature. That's like trying to satiate this, this massive hunger. That's like un unbeatable essentially yes it is Um, unquenchable i mean mm -hmm. we think of we think of thirst that way but i think her hunger is unsated maybe yes um she's never not hungry which truly i can relate to (laughs) well in her first hunger that we're told about is interesting because she disowns her master and she desires to be her own mistress so the first hunger is this sort of rejection of i think what we're seeing in falinor which is this very kind of rigid structure of like this mm-hmm. is what women do this is what men do these are the powers they have and we've talked in the past about how sort of women do have unique generative powers in valinor but we i've also kind of talked about how it pigeonholes mm-hmm. in a lot of ways women in a certain places and, and i think here we're seeing already that like ungoliant is this sort of disruptor of that Right. Um, in her own desire to sort of be different. And I know you, you mentioned Niana in the notes. Yeah. 
Um, no gods, no masters on going in 2024. <laughs> but yeah, so other than Nyana, and honestly, I haven't totally parsed this out, but I do think Nyana almost seems to be the ultimate foil for Ungoliant. Mm. But other than mm. Nyana, Ungoliant is the only female we've seen so far who's unpaired. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't have a male counterpart. She doesn't exist with a, a male in any way. In mm-hmm. fact, she consumes her mates. We learn this later. Um, it's a spider. Yeah, we learn this later. I think in in the two towers, Shelob is the offspring of Ungoliant. Yeah, um, and both Shelob and Ungoliant eat their mates. Yes, like many spiders do. But but for some reason, Diana still stands out to me as like this unpaired female and Ungoliant. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know, Diana is all is all pity and purity. Mm-hmm. Ungoliant is mm-hmm. none of those things, right? She mm-hmm. is uh she is just like darkness she is sullied she is nasty <laughs> she's grotesque we'll talk about that uh-huh. they're both really powerful we've talked mm-hmm. we talked in the um i think episode four about how powerful Maya mm-hmm. is you know that she doesn't need a partner in order to enact her power and ungoliant is also very powerful but it's in this very, very different way, mm-hmm. whether Tolkien likes it or not, they, they sort of get put into the same bucket of like, okay, what's going on here? Can we look at these two together and see how they might serve as foils for one another? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think too, I mean, with Diana, we, we, I mean, she's the one whose tears water the trees. I mean, she is this, she's right, unpaired, but she's still a generative Right. She's a powerful the, creator. Yeah, she's a powerful creator. I mean, she is sort of this maternal and feminine ideal, even though she's not strictly mm-hmm. a mother in the sense of the text. And I mean, Angolianth is like the the sort of twisted reverse of that. I mean, she I mean, she quite literally, of course, destroys the trees, but but she's also this um I mean, Niana, we talk about how she's giving and nurturing. I mean, we have the opposite here, right? It's all about sort mm-hmm. of taking. You know, Niana is kind of this virgin mary figure Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how ungoliant is very not that no yeah she's (laughs) Uh, like the the horror of babylon (laughs) yeah exactly in fact played on a lot of the fears that really kind of the the idea of the virgin Mm -hmm. mary sprang out of Mm -hmm. sort of unrestrained femininity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and it's not just that she destroys it's that she's consuming i think this is an important right she's not just like stomping down little (laughs) villages with her spider feet she's consuming what she destroys but yeah she she seeks to feed an appetite that can never be sated Mm -hmm. right she's always she's always consuming and it's never enough and there's actually no one really knows what happened to ungolian but there is this idea that she eventually just consumed herself like a snake eating its own tail yes now you have some notes i want you to get into this is this monstrous feminine (laughs) It's hard to read Ungoliant as not expressing certain anxieties about women yeah. and women's sexuality. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about sort of her as a sort of monstrous feminine figure, sort of the anti-mother figure in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, contrasts to sort of the almost like saintliness of Diana or the yeah the sort of uh, Madonna figure that that she represents. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I think the basic thing that, that strikes me about it is like, she's essentially sort of expressed this idea of like woman as, as a trap mm-hmm. um, in that sort of consumption, you know, that she's just pure appetite. And that is what's dangerous about her is that, you know, she's this woman with that kind of unsatiable desire, essentially like it's, it's mm-hmm. sort of this unconstrained sort of feminine appetite. That's, that's, I think so threatening here. And, I mean, she's, yeah, like, I was reading this as like, she's basically every anxiety about the feminine that Freud writes about that we mm-hmm. like also make fun of Freud for <laughs> yeah. um, here. It's, it's the same thing. It's just sort of like, you know, a woman is sort of both absence, but also as like ensnarer, um, as somehow closer to animal, mm-hmm. not sort of constrained by social norms or whatever we want to call them. That Ungoliath is sort of the, the arrival into Valinor of like this primitive, which is like a problematic word too but like this word but like this sort of um something closer to animal yeah yeah it's sort of yeah baseness or like much it's for for this universe it's much too focused on the body and and i Mm -hmm. think we've kind of talked about this a little bit in the past but like with the valor we really we rarely get a sense of them as like physical Mm -hmm. there's certain times when they intrude into that space but they're more often like creative imaginative thought <laughs> they're thought centric yeah um and here we have something that is just pure physical form i mean there's right. uh, obviously there's a sort of animating intelligence but it is very much focused on body and you know she's just sort of as we said like this grotesque creature like she's just horrifying too yeah um it's hard yeah, not she's to read got her a that beak, way. folks she's yeah she's a, a black spider with a beak. beak she's like a squid spider it's not just bad enough that she's a spider she also has a beak i mean it's just this way in which you know she's meant to be this kind of not just threatening but like her her very physical form is like gross yeah. and scary yeah <laughs> um, yeah and yeah and it's hard to like dissociate that from i think that that bodily hunger too like that that's what's these things are inseparable yes because she because she consumes she grows bigger mm-hmm. she she literally like just oozes darkness she her webs are woven into darkness right mm-hmm. and this and her power grows as she consumes right which is so interesting to me i started thinking about you know this power dynamic between her and malcor so malcor kind of thinks himself the master of Ungoliant. Mm-hmm. You know, he's enlisting her in his little scheme to destroy the two trees. But really through the like the process, Ungoliant becomes more powerful yep. because she's consuming more. Right. And the difference too is that Melkor wants to take what's already there. Mm-hmm. And she just wants to eat it all. Right. And she has no kind of distinction between good and good Mm -mm. and bad. Right. Mm -mm. Melkor wants to destroy everything that's quote unquote good in this world. Right. Ungoliant will just consume everything. Right. You know, there's no, I also think, you know, Tolkien's probably drawing, you know, we talked about the, like the feminist monstrous as, you know, kind of this Freudian idea. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also think Tolkien is is looking back further. There's a, you know, medieval notions of the female as monster and the sort of demonization of female sexuality linked to menstruation mm. and being unclean, which 
we really think of when we think of Ungoliant. She's grody. <laughs> she's nasty. Um, and again, you know, for medieval theologians, right? The Virgin Mary was this ultimate angel woman. I found <laughs> to go back to all your, you know, feminist literature classes from the Mad Woman in the Attic. Uh, Gilbert and Gruber suggest that Mary's power lies in the surrender of self, mm-hmm. of her personal comfort, her personal desires, or both. Ungoliant has obviously done none of this. Mm-mm. She only desires her personal comforts yeah. and what she wants to consume. So she serves as this antithesis of this holy woman, which we talked about before. It's obviously kind of these like probably Freudian concerns, but I I would be shocked if Tolkien didn't kind of have this medieval idea of, you know, this like monstrous female in his mind as he was writing it. I'm sorry, Tolkien. He loved his wife very much, but he did have some. That doesn't mean you can't have bad opinions. He did have some hangups, let's mm-hmm. just say. Yeah, I mean, he um, he does love order. <laughs> he loves things systematized yeah and kept together and i mean this is ungolian's primary threat too is that she i mean her sort of destruction of the trees is sort of the ultimate destruction of that sort of system that we've seen persist despite melkor's efforts um thus far is you know that this there is even melkor at his worst is still kind of slotted into that hierarchy Mm mm-hmm Whereas when she arrives, she's totally sort of implodes that entire system. And that seems to be the real threat of her here is that she, she's unclassifiable within that hierarchy. Like she just doesn't fit. There's no spot for her uh, because she's worse than Melkor. She's more chaotic than Melkor. Um, What she wants does not fit in with the sort of perceptual framework of the rest of this world where Mm -hmm. the contention has been about seizing power Mm-hmm. And here it's just like this return to the void, like the nothingness she came out of. She's like, she's ready to just drag you all back there. Right. Just, I mean, I, I, it, I cannot help but think this is a giant read on like female sexuality, though. I mean, yes, yes. Uh, um, <laughs> if you want to know more about kind of Tolkien's ideas about just kind of like sex and relationships sex. in general. He does have a letter to his son, Michael. Uh, he wrote it in 1941 and it does talk about basically his whole thoughts on like relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts a man's dealing with women can be purely physical parenthetical. They cannot really, of course, but I mean, he can refuse to take any other things into account to the great damage of his soul and body and theirs and and parentheses or friendly, or he can be a lover engaging in blending all his affections and powers of mind and body in a complex emotion, powerfully colored and Mm. energized by sex. Mm -hmm. This is a fallen word. This dislocation of sex instinct is one of the chief symptoms of the fall. Right. There we go. Yeah. She, uh, Ungoliant, I almost said Shelob, but kind of Shelob. Yeah. Ungoliant is the dislocation of sex instinct, right? She is this kind of malplaced, malformed, mm-hmm. right? Sex instinct. She's very fascinating. I'm fascinated by Ungoliant. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I'm just fascinated by what she says about the larger system that this, this work is constructing too. That there are rules, even Melkor in some bizarre ways follows <laughs> that she just does not. Yeah. Well, the um, rule of order, I think is, mm-hmm. is the big rule that you brought up, right? She refuses to acknowledge any sort of order, but she's also so interesting just because there's no other female figure like Angolian, at least right. in the Silmarillion. But even though she's interesting, she's also like gross. Mm-hmm. That you beak, some, man. Yeah, that beak. Right? Like we don't like her. Like she's no. interesting, but it's also like nasty. She's squelchy. Yeah, we are not meant to like her. The only word I can think of is she just squelches <laughs> everywhere she goes. She's got a big, what is that, a thorax? And oh, just yeah. goes, every time she moves so i'm just going to read this because i do think we should read it and in that very hour melkor and ungoliant came hastening over the fields of valinor as the shadow of a black cloud upon the wind fleets over the sunlit earth and they came before the green mound azelahar then the unlight of Ungoliant rose up even to the roots of the trees, and Melkor sprang upon the mound, and with his black spear he smote each tree to its core, wounding them deep, and their sap poured forth as it were their blood, and was spilled upon the ground. But Ungoliant sucked it up, and going then from tree to tree, she set her black beak in their wounds till they were drained. And the poison of death that was in her went into their tissues and withered them, root, branch, and leaf, and they died. And still she thirsted, and going to the wells of Varda, she drank them dry. But Ungoliant belched forth black vapors as she drank and swelled to a shape so vast and hideous that Melkor was afraid. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> it gives me so many chills. It's- yeah, it's really gross. It's so bad, but it's so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> there's a reading on the spear there too, but yeah, well, also the beak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. I mean, it's just kind of weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do we need to put the explicit tag on this? I, think, I don't know. Episode. Does, uh, does Freudianism count as explicit content? I just want to. I want to make it clear. Neither of us is like real. Like neither of us is super into Freud. I think this is no, just the best but, way to read this. I think yeah, it's hard to not right? see it here. It's, neither of um, us is like sitting around thinking about Freud and trains going into tunnels. But well, speak for yourself. I will speak for myself. None of, <laughs> none of me is sitting around thinking about Freud and trains going into tunnels. But I think this does make for the most interesting mm-hmm. reading of Angolian and the best way to kind of understand how she may be functioning in this work. Yeah. Does that do it for us? I think, I think that's, yeah, I think that's, I think that's it. That. I mean, what else can we say about our giant spider queen? Not much. You know, we do love her. Mm-hmm. I think she's really interesting. I think deep down Tolkien loved her. And so what's uh, next week? What do we have our, for our listeners to chomp their little black beaks into and just suck the marrow out of it? So they will be sucking the marrow out of chapter. Well, we will be sucking the marrow out of chapter nine for them. Oh, gross. Like a bird. Um, just open your little beaks and we'll regurgitate the knowledge into you. Baby bird, the knowledge into you. Yeah. Um, so that's chapter nine. That's of the flight of the Noldor. 
It's pretty long. I think it's the only chapter we're going to be able to cover. But if it turns out to be not so interesting, we might also tack on chapter 10 of the Sindar. I don't think we'll need to, but I also hate to say that. I'd rather say we will maybe do it and not do it than say we're going to do it definitively and not do it. Uh, Anyway, shoot us an email, songdetailspod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We want to know your questions. We want to know your thoughts. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking of something and we haven't mentioned it, please tell us. We will bring it up on the pod. Uh, We're so thankful for all of you for listening. We hope that you stay happy, that you stay healthy, and that you stay reading. And we'll Mm -hmm. be back in two weeks to talk to you about more of the Silmarillion. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Songs and Tales, A Literary Guide to Middle-Earth is produced by Clara McHugh and Aaron Babcock. Intro and outro music is by Joe McHugh. The podcast's artwork is by Jenny Calais. You can find us on Twitter at Songs and Tales Pod, on Instagram at Songs and Tales Pod, and can email us at, you guessed it, songsandtalespod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Oh, here she comes. Watch out, for she'll chew you up. Oh, here she comes. She's a maid eater. It's as much as you're going to get out of me. That's pretty good.